Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks and that we can hear your voice as we read your word this morning. Please, would we hear and see what these things mean for us today as we trust in Jesus and seek to follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2022, in London, in the light of all the knowledge that science has given us about how the world works, what do we make of accounts like the one we've just heard from Acts chapter 3, of a miracle that appears to turn everything we know about science and medicine upside down? I guess many people today will fall into one of two categories. Well, I either tend to be deeply sceptical of this kind of thing, you know, always looking for a rational explanation of things that are claimed as miracles. Others will be much more open-minded. It's not that there are uh, no miracles, because all of life is a miracle, we might say. Every breath, every meal, every opportunity, undeserved, truly extraordinary that we should be here at all. Perhaps in the context of Christian faith today, we're also aware of how the idea of miracles has sometimes been used manipulatively. Whether it's a kind of charlatan, so-called healer, pushing people over on stage in a marquee, and claiming people have been changed when, uh, healed when nothing really has changed, uh, or somebody taking people's money via a TV channel to fund their private jet lifestyle. And then there are those who've sort of genuinely believed for a miracle, as people might put it. You know, in the face of some grave or terminal illness in themselves or others and they've become convinced that God is going to heal and he doesn't and there is this uh, the result in, in, in some cases is total disillusionment and even loss of faith you know what's the point of Christian faith if God doesn't come through when it matters people think well this chapter is going to help us to begin to address some of those issues. The structure of this chapter is very similar to what we've seen over the last couple of weeks, if you've been with us. So something extraordinary happens, and then Peter stands up and he preaches about it to explain what is going on. That was the structure of chapter 2, and we did it in 2. preached in the second half of the chapter that we looked at last week, and he shows how, you know, this, this is all part of God's plan. Here's how it fits. Jesus had to die and rise and ascend to, to uh, God's right hand to rule over the world, and that plan has worked, and this is a sign that it's working, and it's happening. And now there is this same idea again, something extraordinary, and a sermon that follows. So first of all, we're going to look at it all at once. First, in verses 1 to 11, the sign, a miracle in Jesus' name, the sign, a miracle in Jesus' name, verses 1 and 2 to 4, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Now, the way that Luke tells this account as he goes on through the following verses, um, it might ring some bells. And that's because there are lots of parallels, not just here, but throughout the whole of the book of Acts, between uh, this book and miracle account reads a lot like Jesus' miracles. There's somebody helpless. So think maybe of the paralyzed man, if you're aware of, of that account of what happened when they brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. Here's somebody else who cannot do anything for himself, who has to be carried, be brought by others. He asks for something here. He asks for money, but he doesn't actually ask to be healed. And uh, Jesus does the same thing on a number of occasions. People aren't even asking. 
and he is healing them because he can see their need. And so the dramatic moment is verse 6 here. Silver or gold I do not have, but what I have, what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Now, of course, this bit is different from how Jesus healed people. He would just command them, get up and walk. Now, here, this is different, isn't it? These are the apostles, and it's clear that whatever power is going on here... It's not in them personally, it's in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We'll think what that means in, in a bit. But then, like with the miracles that Jesus did directly, the effect is instantaneous. The man's feet and ankles become strong. He jumped and he began to walk and he went into the temple courts walking and jumping. Now, it's quite something, isn't it, to imagine somebody who's been lame from birth suddenly jumping around, sort of zero to 60 in a few milliseconds. It's not some kind of gradual recovery. It is instant healing. And it's, it's just worth remembering as we read this and we see how it's described to us, Luke himself, we understand, was a doctor. He was a physician, he's described as. Paul calls him that at the end of Colossians. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that he knew what we know today from modern medicine. And their understanding of things would have been quite different in, in lots of ways. But it means, at the very least, he would have had a, a, a very good idea of what was normal and what was not normal in human beings. Particularly when it comes to people who can't walk. And actually, you don't need to be a doctor to realise this is extraordinary. So do the people watching. It's very obvious to everyone that something completely remarkable has happened. And so the question we might then have as people reading this in 2022 is, well, okay, did this actually happen? You know, can we really believe this? Um, and it's a good question, but of course it's in a similar category to the question of, about all the other miraculous things that happen in the Bible. And there are quite a few, not least in Jesus' ministry itself, as we read about in the Gospels. And we've seen Luke drawing, deliberately drawing the parallels to sort of imply this is like that that you've, you've read about before. And of course you will find people who say, well, you know, don't be ridiculous, this is scientifically impossible. Things like this don't happen and they couldn't happen. But the thing is, we have to be careful not to claim more than science is actually able to prove, don't we? So science works on the basis of repeatedly observing what normally happens in a world that appears, as far as we can see, to have a kind of order to it. So, you know, you repeatedly observe something and you conclude, well, this is kind of generally what happens, and you, you, you call that a law. So this is the, the law that the universe obeys. But the problem with miracles, you see, is that by definition, they are exceptions to things that normally happen. Can you see? And it's the old thing of absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. Do you get the difference? Absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. So have you, have you ever tried looking for four-leaf clovers? You know, first you have to be sure that what you're looking at is actually clover, which in my experience is harder than it sounds. But I, I remember as a child looking for ages on a number of occasions. I don't know if you've had the same thing, and you know... As far as I can see, all clovers always have three leaves. 
and that's because the vast majority of them do have just three leaves. But does the fact that I personally have never seen a four-leaf clover mean it doesn't exist or couldn't happen? Well, no. So absence of evidence, I haven't got any evidence personally, but absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. It's not evidence that such a thing does not, definitely doesn't ever happen anywhere. And it's the same with miracles, you see. It's the fact that they are rare is exactly the point. But then the next question is, well, okay, if there is no reason to doubt this actually happened, why don't we see this kind of thing more often? Could it happen now? Well, before we can answer that, we need to listen to Peter explain what is actually going on. So we come then next to the sermon part one. The sermon part one, what God has done, verses 12 to 18. So verse 12, <clears throat> uh, when Peter saw this, he said to them, fellow Israelites, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? And immediately there's a twist, and it's like chapter 2, you see. The people are transfixed by this extraordinary miracle, and they're kind of going, you know, what's going on here? Explain what, how on earth this happened. We've seen this guy stand up and walk. And, and we kind of come the same. We come with our big questions. We want to know about healings, you know, if, because if, if we can sort of access the same thing, that would be amazing. But again, like in chapter 2, Peter wants to talk about Jesus. And that's because, verse 16, it is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed him. And this significance of the, the idea of the name of Jesus is unpacked in, in verses 13 to 15. The name of someone in that world is not just what they're called and what they're known as, but what they stand for. So Peter told them to call on the name of the Lord in chapter 2, whose name is Jesus. He then showed and now he unpacks a little, little more of what that name stands for so verses 13 to 15 the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus you handed him over to be killed you disowned him before Pilate though he, he had decided to let him go you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you you killed the author of life but God raised him from the dead and we are witnesses of this so did you hear what he calls him there? He calls him the servant, God's servant. He calls him the holy and righteous one, and he calls him the author of life. So can you see that the point is Peter and John are ordinary people, but Jesus is not an ordinary man. He is God-made man, the, the holy God who made the world and everyone in it, and yet he's also the servant. Isaiah chapter 53 and other parts of Isaiah talk of God's servant who would be pierced for his people's transgressions and by his wounds they would be healed. And so he says, you killed the author of life. What an extraordinary thing to say. You just get your head around that. They killed the author of life. Kind of great irony, paradox. You took the life of the one who gave you life. So, no surprise then, will God raise him from the dead? As we saw last time when Peter quoted from Psalm 16, it was impossible for death to keep a hold of the author of life. Of course it was. And it's in his name 
that this man was healed. Well, no wonder then, if this is who Jesus is, no wonder that in his name the man was healed. But we need to make sure we don't miss Peter's logic here. His concern isn't really about the miracle itself. At the end of chapter 4, Luke calls what's happened here a sign. And it's the word that actually John's gospel uses consistently for miracles like this. He always calls them signs. And calling it a sign reminds us that it's there to point away from itself to what it's pointing to. Now, say you want to go to um, Windsor Castle, or indeed Legoland. They're pretty close to each other, a bit different from one another, but they're, they're, they're close by. And you start driving around the M25, you, you might see this sign. Here it is. You see it's got Windsor Castle, Legoland, and indeed Ascot Racecourse, should that be where you wish to go. And um, if you look, you can see there's a little picture that goes with each of those things. There's a castle, there's some kind of funfair thing, and there's a horse for the racecourse. Now, let's be clear, the brown sign is not there so that you stop on the hard shoulder of the motorway when you see it and kind of go, great. Windsor Castle, we've arrived. Here it is. It's not on the hard shoulder of the M25. There is an actual ancient castle in the middle of Windsor. It's 3D and everything. And, you know, Legoland has some pretty great rides. It's not just whatever that is implying, a tree and a, a carousel. And is that, I don't know what that other one is. Is it another tree or possibly an ice cream? But... No, that's the sign that just tells you you're, you're, in, you're heading in the right direction, keep going, and you will get to where this is pointing to. And Peter is saying, this healing that has happened is there to point us to something even greater, which is what God has done in Jesus. Don't get stuck on the sign, see what it's pointing to. And the second reading that we heard points, uh, spells that out as well. The author of the letters to the Hebrews talks about the salvation that God has made known to us in Jesus. And he says it was confirmed to us by those who heard him, who heard Jesus. That's the eyewitnesses like Peter here. And then he says God also testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles. He testified to it by signs, wonders and various miracles. He testified to the salvation that the apostles like Peter have proclaimed. So that's what the author to the Hebrews is saying. And this helps us to understand one of the things that often puzzles people. So why do miracles like this seem to feature here and earlier in the Bible at particular times, but they don't seem to kind of happen equally throughout the world and throughout the history of the world? Even within the Bible, they're actually concentrated within particular times and places, not just all the time everywhere. And the answer is, well, they are signs that are pointing to something else. They're signs, look, guys, something's happening, happening here, something new, something different. Pay attention. God is doing something. That's what they're saying. And so here, what are they, what's going on? Well, we know the book of Acts is all about the establishment of the foundation of the church, the people of God. The apostles are being established as the primary witnesses to God's people. Jesus has gone, so people are thinking, well, what do we do now? And the big message is, you've got to listen to these apostles who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Listen to what they have to say. And the miracles then kind of confirm that and make people go, oh yeah, we need to listen to them. 
And actually, then, it's the same for us today. What do we have to do? Not look for more miracles, first of all, but see that these miracles here are there to get us to listen to the apostles just the same. We today still need to listen to these apostles because they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. So the sign, the miracle, is pointing us to do that. Listen to them, look and see then what God has done. So that's the first part of the sermon. And then Peter turns to his hearer's response. The sermon part two, what you must do, verses 19 to 26, what you must do. Now every preacher has themes that reoccur in their preaching, if not the odd story or illustration from time to time. But Peter's theme that we've heard, and we heard this last time, is that he declares what God has done, and then he says, as he did at the end of chapter 2, therefore repent. Turn back to God, that means. And and he puts here, he puts it in a slightly different way from what he did at the end of chapter 2. Last time he said, repent and you will receive forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, he says, can you see, your sins will be wiped out. Verse 19, times of refreshing will come from the Lord and he will send the Messiah, Jesus, to come back. And it's different language, but it's a similar idea. Isn't it a remarkable thing to think of sins being wiped out as a way of thinking about forgiveness? You know, think how so many people carry around with us a sense of regret, a sense of guilt, Uh, for things that we've said and done or not said and not done, ways that we've hurt other people, big ways, small ways. (laughs) Don't we long for it to be forgotten? Don't we long, don't we wish we could start over and have a blank slate? Well, it turns out that is exactly what we're offered. Even though, as we saw last time, the people listening here were implicated in killing the author of life. So if even that can be forgiven and forgiveness can be offered, well, so can anything that we might have said or done or left unsaid or undone. Isn't that good news? And then more than that, he says, times of refreshing. Now, this is a phrase that occurs nowhere else in the Bible. What are times of refreshing? Well, if you look at the verse as a whole, there's a progression from talking of Sins being wiped out. And then at the end of the verse, he's talking about Jesus coming back in the future, which suggests this is something in between those two things. And then if you compare it to what he said last time, he said, you know, you'll receive forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the most likely explanation you put together the way the Spirit is described in other places, times of refreshing is is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in us if we're trusting in Jesus. Our sins have been forgiven, we're waiting for Jesus to come back, and now the Holy, Holy Spirit is given to us to work in us and live in us and work in us. Now the focus is the future. Do you see that? Verse 21, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. And in those last five verses, he points again to the witness of the Old Testament. This is exactly what God promised, he says. It hasn't come out of the blue. So as we draw all this together then, where does it leave us? 
Well, it's saying, in the light of COVID, in the light of cancer, in the light of debilitating illness, seen or unseen, depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, the, you know, we, with the idea of miraculous healing draws us in and makes us say, you know, wouldn't that be wonderful? How can I get that for myself or others? Tell me what I'm supposed to pray or do. But Peter is telling us to take a step back. Understand these, these healings that we see here, this particular healing. It's a sign. It's not the main event. And actually, it's the same today then. You know, so there are stories around of people who've had some serious illness that the doctors couldn't treat, and then something happens, and they pray, and others pray for them, and they return to the doctors completely better. And no one can explain what has happened. Now, it doesn't seem to happen all that often, but it seems to happen sometimes. And so we can certainly pray for people, and we can pray for one another. We can pray for ourselves. We can pray for God to work through the ways that he normally works to bring about healing in terms of medical care and, and, and uh, practical care for one another and all that kind of thing. But the thing is, both then and now, if that becomes the focus of our hope and the end point of our desires, we're just concerned with kind of feeling better now, actually we're missing what Peter wants us to see. Because it's just a sign to what Jesus is offering. He offers one day new bodies for all without suffering or sin. And as a foretaste of that, he offers healing on the inside, forgiveness of sin, of the things that separate us from God. He offers times of refreshing by the Holy Spirit. And from time to time, that may include being delivered from some problem that we face here and now, even being healed in some way. But we need to see, and we need to see that in the widest possible sense. The way that, that the Holy Spirit might work in us now. You know, if you think about it, 2,000 years ago, there were no hospitals. There was no hope for so many with, with all the physical things that they experienced. I guess many of us today would be cripples and in serious pain or, or even just dead by now were it not for modern medicine. And we should thank God for that. And we should see that in one sense for the kind of miracle it is. You know, how would, how would someone 2,000 years ago have described what human beings today in many countries can receive simply through the benefits of, of science and medicine? They would have just thought, well, that's absolutely extraordinary that you can stand up and walk again having not been able to walk because of something uh, a doctor's been able to do. Now, I'm not saying that is the same as what happens here because there is something here which is clearly even more instantaneous than anything uh, that, that um, even modern medicine can do. But we need to not kind of dismiss what we have and the way that we can therefore pray for one another um, for God to work through the ways that he, he seems to normally work. But we need to see all of this we need to see all of this also, whether or not we can explain it. It is just a taste of the future. It's like the sign on the M25. It's a little picture of the future, but it's not the destination. 
And the point is, however much we might long for healing in whatever way here and now, for ourselves or for others, it is just a picture of what will happen when God restores all things. It's like going into the kitchen when, uh, you know, when Granny is doing some baking and being allowed to lick the spoon. It just gives you a taste of what's to come. But it's not the real thing yet, which will be even more wonderful. You know, those who have experienced some kind of miraculous healing, whether in biblical times or more recently, in whatever way, well, they're not delivered from living in a fallen world. They still have to live with being a sinner like the rest of us. Still one day have to die. But there is a day coming when there will be no more crying or pain, when everybody will be made new, when everyone will jump and leap for joy. And on that day, every Christian will beat cancer, every Christian will be COVID-free, every Christian will be without pain, with new bodies that don't fall apart or not work properly. Every Christian will be healed in every possible way. Every Christian will know Christ forever. Well, how can we receive that? How, how can we know then that we will receive that then? By turning to Jesus now. That is what Peter's calling us to do. Can you see that? He says, repent, turn. Say, Lord, I'm yours. I want to go your way, not mine. I'm trusting in Jesus. And Peter's sermon ends by summarizing that as God blessing us. Do you see that verse 26? How does God bless us? What is the blessing that we long for? The chapter began with an extraordinary healing and in the world today many would say, would assume that that, is, that must be the blessing. If God is going to bless us in any way it would be in some sort of um, here and now benefit like that. Well, Peter says, look, when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Why would he say that? Because that is how God ensures then that we're ready to receive what he has in store when Jesus returns. So that as we repent and turn to God, we know our sins will be wiped out, times of refreshing will come from the Lord, and then that we wait for him to send his Messiah, to send Jesus, the day when he will come, verse 21, and restore everything. Well, what a hope to be able to focus on. Let's pray now. Father, we praise you and thank you for the extraordinary hope that we have that one day Jesus will return, that uh, one day 
you will restore everything. But for those who trust in Jesus, there will be new and live in perfect relationship with him and with one another. We thank you for ways in which we experience just a little tiny bit of that now as we turn, as we know the joy of our sins being forgiven and wiped out, as we have the Holy Spirit living in us, giving us a foretaste of the life to come, as we experience the joy of knowing you, of finding hope in you, of walking in relationship with you and being able to share that with others around us. Would you please help us to keep doing that? In Jesus' name, amen.